Five million since lunch. Two million Connex short since this morning. Another 1.2 short, BT. And now B Sky B. Five more. I have just gambled eight million quid. Whoa. You've got the dick to do something like that, have you, Spoon? Teach you how to hold a cricket bat. Teach you a good sculling stroke. Can't teach you everything. I made nearly half a million yesterday. And I made eight by shorting the market, so. Welcome to the Soho Theatre podcast. Payne's Plough and Soho Theatre's co-production, Roaring Trade, opens on the 7th of January and it's the first play of Soho Theatre's 40th year. It's a topical, fast-paced new drama about city traders and I'm here with Steve Thompson, the writer, and director Roxanne Silbert, who is the artistic director of Payne's Plough. So Steve, how did you get into writing? By accident, completely by accident. I was a teacher for most of my professional career and I... Jacked in in order to be a house dad. I, I left my teaching career to go and bring up my children. And whilst I was off with the kids, I wrote a play. That was four or five years ago. Um, and uh, a friend of mine, rather cheekily, um, gave it to Terry Johnson, who I'd never met. She knew Terry Johnson. She gave it to him. And he wrote me a charming letter four, four and a half years ago saying, I really, I really think you ought to try and do this for a living. It was a kind of dream call to get. Um, and, and that was it. I, I wrote my next play in the Bush stage, did it in 2004. Roxanne Silver directed that as well. And I've been, been working ever since. But it was a total accident, really. It was just, uh, it sounds a bit uh, unbelievable, but I really did, you know, write a play just for me initially. And I uh, was very lucky to get it staged. And you've, um, you've previously written about lawyers and parliamentary whips. How did the idea for Roaring Trade first come about? Because I met some traders. I, mean, I, read, I read about lawyers because um, my wife is uh, a libel... She's a lawyer, she's a libel barrister. And so I wrote about what she do, does for a living. That was my first play, Damages. And, um, uh, in fact, I, you know, I always said, you know, I have, having had a success with that play, then Lorna needed to go out and get another job so I could write another play. But fortunately, a couple of years later, I... I was inspired by a newspaper article to write Whipping It Up, the play about the whips. Uh, in the case of the bond traders, the case of Roaring Trade, the new play, I, I met the people that the play was about. I was on a bond floor um, for a couple of hours one morning, and uh, it was a huge drama, just a very compelling drama to watch these people in action. And uh, I, I wanted to write the play. And so, how much of those kind of people that you met during the research kind of ended up as characters in the play? Did you find that it kind of they translated quite well to to stage or to a script? Okay, there's two answers to that question. There is the um, sort of uh, litigious answer, which is um, none of them are represented at all in the play. Uh, and then there's the the true answer, which is that I suppose the characters you see in the play are a conglomeration of lots of different people. I mean. <laughs> You, you, you do get types. Inevitably, there are types of people who are drawn to the money market, who are drawn to that kind of lifestyle. And I think um, people who work in finance, people who work on a bond floor, might come along and recognise themselves. I mean, we have been researching this play, and actually one of the nicknames of the characters in the play, it turns out, is also the nickname of somebody we met during our research. Is that right? That's right, Spoonie, as in uh, Silver Spoonie's Mouth, is uh, one of the key characters in the play. <clears throat> and when we went to the Royal Bank of Scotland, which is where we went to do the research, to the bond floors there, the chap that showed us around, his nickname was Spoonie. 
So he, he, he obviously now thinks the play is about him, which is not at all. But Spooning, I think, is just one of those collective kind of... Not collective, it's just one of those names that crops up every so often. They have their own kind of language on the bottom floor. And nicknames is a huge part of it. It's very much like walking into a classroom in many ways, wouldn't you say? That's a lot... Well, I mean, the more we work on the, pl- on the play, the more it feels like um, being in a school playground. So I think it's interesting that Steve was a teacher, because, because actually... Uh, the play is a lot about bullying and how bullying affects people. And I think one of the things that's become very apparent to me is that it, you know, it, it, it's um, sometimes tricky to write a play about a, a group of people who appear to be very selfish, very uh, motivated by, by their personal wealth and, and um, very greedy and very competitive. But actually, these are people in a system that makes them that way. Uh, and that's what's been very interesting about doing the re- research, is realising that you put anybody in a situation where you are forced to respond to consistent bullying and humiliation, I mean it's absolutely rife, then that is going to change you. I mean if you have anything in your character, um, that uh, any survival mechanism in your character, you are going to have to to change, and the, and, the, and the main character walks in a perfectly decent bloke. I mean, he's not um, in any way um, a bully, but he does become one. Uh, and, you know, it, it, whatever is in the play, in terms of that playground world, which is, you know, survival of the fittest, and everything is a piss take, any vulnerability you show is basically an opportunity to have a piss ripped out of you. Tell them about the shirt. Exactly, that's what I was going to say. You know, whatever's in the play, the um, the anecdotes that come back are much worse. So uh, the, the chap Spoon who showed us around was saying that he kind of walked into work one day and he, he'd, he had a very old shirt that he wore occasionally which had holes in it, which his colleagues took again, so he walked in and they just ripped it off him as a joke. Um, and he thought it was hilariously funny and so did everyone else and there was no bad feeling about it. So that's the normal behaviour. So then to write a play which suggests um, an extreme form of that behaviour is really quite difficult because the normal behaviour is so extreme in most people's eyes. But in that world, it's perfectly normal. Mm. And that's just one of lo- you know, loads of sort of example. Uh, well, we've talked a lot about um, if you're handling millions of pounds every day, that creates a huge amount of adrenaline, a big adrenaline rush. And once you've done the deal, or maybe even maybe the deal might have gone bad. What do you do with that adrenaline? Where does it go? And uh, clearly a lot of the time you, you take it out with your colleagues, you take it out in your neighbours. When I went to the bottom floor initially, I was really surprised. You know, in any other walk of life, in any other job, um, if somebody comes into work and they're feeling a bit miffed, everybody sort of quietly says, you know, leave them alone, Let, don't upset them, just leave them to stew. Well, the, the trading floor is the complete opposite. If somebody comes into work looking a little bit sensitive, a bit upset, everybody else gangs up and says, right, we'll see if we can push them over the edge. So it sounds like a playground, and in fact, as Roxy says, it is. And um, that's just an example of what you do with this extraordinary amount of adrenaline that you've generated through making millions of pounds. You you turn to your neighbours, you bully them, you cajole them, you tease them, and sometimes the behaviour can be, you know, incredibly extreme, can't it? Yeah, but and like a school, what you've got is a. I mean, these the bond before we went to see had seven hundred people squished into it. I mean, it's quite intense. 
There are a lot of them are very young, so they're, they're all in their early, mid-twenties. They've got a lot of money. They're doing a job which is, uh, has highs, but is actually quite boring. So you've got people who are incredibly clever, really clever, doing really a very boring job with too much money. And so they're trying to entertain each other. I mean, at some level, they're just trying to make their lives a bit interesting. And that's, you know, where the banter is. But also the banter's very witty. You, you, you know, it's not, uh, it's not rough. It's funny. It's sharp. And that's what's wonderful about the plays, that Steve's managed to capture a world that's very sharp and very funny and very witty. But actually, the values that sustain it are quite dark and ugly. But incredibly attractive. I mean, uh, you can see why you would love to work in that. I, I think the attraction is the key point, actually. I write about things I'd quite like to do. And um, I, I find the bottom floor an attractive place to be. For all the bullying, for all the cajoling, I actually want to be there. I see them do their jobs and I think, blimey, I wish I could do it. I wish I had that knowledge at my fingertips. I wish I had that nerve. And I really like spending time with these people. And I think that's what kind of Roxy is saying is, you know, despite the fact that some of the behaviour is cruel, ultimately you, as an audience, still want to spend time with these people because they're sharp and witty, and they have a, you know, a great rapport. They have a great banter that I think we want to, to be part of. Did you find it difficult to kind of capture that um, dialogue? I think one of the things that you can really see in World Trade is it is just almost so polished. Did you kind of take great comebacks and make them a little bit better, or? Um, a lot of the dialogue is borrowed verbatim um, from, from the things they say on the bond floor. Um, I, I mean, it's quite extraordinary. <laughs> I think this being a podcast, I'm not sure <laughs> quite who it's going out to and who's listening. I won't repeat some of it, but I mean, it is quite, quite rich, the language, quite you know, foul sometimes. But yes, it is a gift for a writer in that sense. You don't have to sit there and dream up these sort of beautifully baroque phrases. They're just, they're just there, they're given to you. Um, extraordinary kind of ima imagination. What about a risk limit? What about it? it? Well, it matters. What they let you play? Four. I risk more than four million, I get a scolding. So? Step over the line a bit. Pardon? The serious people do it, the people who aren't frightened to try. Step over the line. Not in your nature, worried about detention after school. And um, the play is in part about short trading. Could you explain what short trading is? I, mean, I know it is explained in the play, but... That's a very dangerous question for Alex, because he was a maths teacher. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's, all I do go on Okay, so it's selling something you don't own yet. If you know the price of something is about to fall, sell it. Even if you don't own it, sell it, because then you can buy it at the end of the day. I mean, I, the, 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 the nub of short trading is having the nerve to sell something you don't even own yet. Um, I, could, I could take something of yours, you know, Alex, and go, your coat, I could go out on the street now and sell your coat to someone if I knew the price of it was going to fall. And then I'd come back in here once the price had fallen and buy it from you for less and then go pass it to that bloke outside. And it's a type of trading that's commonly been blamed for creating the credit crunch mm. because you're selling stuff you don't own it's very risky um, and you uh, it's a very high turnover you say so you, you, you you buy in the morning and sell in the evening mm. so you're doing a lot of trades very fast 
there's another form of trading which is long trading where you buy something and you, you sit on it until the price uh, rises and then you sell it and that could be days or weeks or years, months, years and that's a traditional form of trading. Um, so it's, I think what Steve does brilliantly in the play I mean, I'm someone who doesn't understand or didn't understand the city at all and doesn't understand money at all. But I do understand it now, and I think the play really does make that world very clear and accessible and that specific type of trade trading very clear and, um, and exciting. Uh, and I think one of his, well, no, I think that's one of the great assets of the play, you know, that you, you do really understand it. There's a scene in the play um, where... Donnie, one of the traders, explains short trading to his son. He sits there at a meal table in a fast food restaurant using a ketchup bottle and a Coca-Cola glass. Explains who has what money. Um, and that's quite, it was quite joyful for me to write that. I mean, I was imagining, I suppose, it'd be explaining it to my own son. But actually, it's quite, it's quite simple. The rudiments of it are quite simple, but they're great fun to grasp. You come away with this fantastic new piece of knowledge about something which has always been a, a kind of a mystery, and that's what I, I enjoy most about the place, taking the lid off a world and just showing people something they thought they knew about and actually giving them that little, little bit more insight and access to it. It's been great fun to write. Where shall we stick your money? Hey. You need concrete gonads shorting the market, selling bonds you don't even own. Five plus two plus one point two. Let me see you do better than that, Mr. Spoon. Your limit is what? Eight. Million? Yeah, eight. So you went over. Burst your limit. Just a little. Risk and reward, Spoon, my friend. If you want to shag one of them, her sister always wants to join in. Look. I haven't got the spine to do what I do. Maybe I haven't. It's, it, the play does seem to come at a very... Um, kind of coincidental time. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Did you have the idea a, lot of, a long time ago, or has it just happened to everything has sort of fallen into place? Well, again, there's lots of answers to that. Um, Roxana thinks I'm the Grim Reaper, in that uh, you know, she thinks I can write about things which are about to happen. <clears throat> we worked on a play together four years ago, um, set in a newspaper, about um, uh, a fake photograph which was published in the newspapers, in a tabloid newspaper. And then a week later, Piers Morgan was fired from the Daily Mirror for, for the fake, fake photograph, and everybody thought somehow I must have had inside knowledge. And no, it's blind luck. So my answer to that question is, though, this time it's blind luck again. I wrote about short trading, delivered the play, and then a month later in the news, everybody was blaming short trading for the credit crunch. Roxana has a different answer to that question. She thinks that I have a nose for this kind of stuff. But... I think writers often have a nose for this sort of stuff because I think, you know, we were doing so well for so long. And in fact, although when Steve said he wanted to write the play, we had no idea that um, the market was going to collapse. Uh, now we've done our research within the market, they knew that the market had topped, so they may not have been able to predict quite how far it would fall, but they knew it had topped. And once you've topped, there's only one way down, isn't there? There's only one way to go, and that is down. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that... Uh, one gets that. I mean, what you know, you can feel it. You can feel the change in prosperity, in ambition, in um, confidence. And I think people who are very sensitive to, to that will, you know, will pick that up. And if you're a writer, you know, it's going to go into your work. So I don't think these things are accidental. I don't think, I mean, I think this is the first play, probably, that's specifically about the, the credit crunch of what just led up to it. But I'm sure there will be a raft of them. 
and I'm sure they will not all have been written as a response to the credit crunch, but they will have been written just prior to it, because people will have suddenly got interested in it, suddenly got interested in it as a subject matter, and, and may not even know how, but they just did. And it's been a, a, a drama that's obviously been played out in our life for the last couple of months. Radio 4 goes on every morning in my house. And every single morning for the last month, it seems to be the lead story has been about finance, about the city, about the collapse of the market. So that drama is clearly you know, all pervasive. And you know, it, I, I guess you know, Roxy's right, it does kind of enter your subconscious as a writer, even if it did a year ago or six months ago when we started working on the play. And Roxana, you took the cast to a training floor the other day. Um, has it informed how the play is being performed or staged at all? There are technical things that it definitely informs. I mean, exactly, there are scenes in the play where we see people trading. So we had to get quite, quite a good grasp of what happens. And there, a lot of it happens on monitors and screens. And we have to get the right stuff on the monitors and screens for them to trade with so that what they say connects to what we see on stage. And exactly how you make a deal, how you process an order, you know, the whole, like, like Sue says, it's like its own language, it has its own slang. Understanding that, being very clear about the mechanics of what goes on. I think that's, that's very important. Um, I mean, there are other things that you're always looking at, which is how people dress. Um, which is something that the play brings up anyway, but obviously we're looking at it quite in quite a lot of detail in terms of buying costumes, that sort of thing. Um, and a feel for the place. I mean, what's extraordinary is how beautiful these buildings are and how alluring and everything is very attractive. Um, and that influenced the set a great deal. I, I really wanted a design that gave you a sense that this was a really beautiful place to work, you know, there's a lot of glass, there's a lot of marble, there's a lot of works of art. Um, and then it's the energy of the people, I mean that's the most important thing, the energy is very particular um, and very different to uh, the working day of an actor, for example. So, you know, learning, learning, watching that energy is one thing and then understanding what's, or how to sustain it, why it's happening, is, is the work of the rehearsal room. So you're kind of looking at it and thinking, you know, we, we just did the voiceovers, because obviously in the play, they're on the squawk boxes, and the squawk boxes talk back to them, so we had to record all the people on the other side of the conversation. And we did have a, um, someone in who is a trader, and uh, the directness and the assertiveness of the voice is very particular, uh, so just listening to those things is very important. But I mean, research is a funny thing, because at the end of the day, uh, you, can't you, can, you can only do what's in the play, and what's in the play has to connect to yourself. So the research is really useful to feed in, but it, it's, it's, uh, it's then got to assimilate into something else. And that's, that's, very, that's the difficult bit. And I think that's a difficult bit both when you're writing and performing. And finally, what do you think the impact of the financial crisis on the arts will be? And do you think, how, how do you think it should respond? I think the impact will be many-fold. I think you'll see um, a raft of plays that are specifically about the city or um, the consequences of the credit crunch. 
I think you will see um, some serious impact on the arts in terms of finance. I mean, there just won't be as much money. You know, when you've got a lot of money um, flowing around, people are very happy to give it to you for arts projects. When that, when the money dries up, um, it becomes much harder to finance the arts. Um, to me, I think what's interesting about this particular, I and mean, this is purely personal, but what I think is interesting about this particular uh, recession is that I mean, recessions are cyclical. They always happen. They happen regularly. Um, and I think the reason that this one has had such an impact is because actually it's about questioning a set of value systems that has been very solid since Thatcher entered government. And, you know, I'm old enough to have seen Thatcher come in and leave. Um, and I'm old enough to know what an enormous impact she made to this country. And that the values that that swept in are the values that we have lived by. Um, and so that's, what, 25 years of believing certain things about what makes um, a country successful, what makes a person successful, what, what values we should hold as, a, as a individuals and as a culture. And I think what's going on with this recession and why there's such a vitriolic attack on the city is because actually people are going, well, this is stupid. These values are stupid. They're not good values to live by. It's not good to see a house as a property, a house as a home which is, for example, one of the big changes that happened. You know, houses stopped being people's homes and they started being people's investments. So when they stop being investments, what do they become? Um, and I think that the way that those cultural and personal values change and the impact they have on artists and the way they think and um, work are much more profound and long-lasting. And those are the ones that you can't predict. But I think it's often a time of fantastic creative flourish. I know it's not good for people who are losing lots of money, but those periods of serious social change are often periods of great artistic um, endeavour, they're, because they're unstable and there's everything to play for. Uh, and I think that will be the most lasting impact, because I think, no, not very much about the market, that, uh, you know, we'll ride this out and in two or three years' time we'll stabilise and, you know, things will kind of be okay. I don't think we're suddenly going to plummet into destitution. Um, but I think that people's attitudes will change quite significantly. I think there's a generation who will seriously rethink their parents' values. That was Steve Thompson and Roxana Silbert, the writer and director of Roaring Trade, which opens at Soho Theatre on the 7th of January and runs until the 7th of February. Tickets are on sale now at sohotheatre.com or via our box office on 020 7478 0100.